0: Let us pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we are grateful that you call us to yourself. You are the God of Hesed, and we are grateful that you disclose yourself to us, that you want to know us and be known by us, so that we might make you known to the world. We thank you for your word this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would cast light on your scriptures, that you would cast light on our hearts and that you would teach us how to love like you love. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite the Reverend Gina Mayo up to read our scripture for the morning.
1: I read to you today from the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Killian, and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malan's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Gina. Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third. This fall, we have been working through the book of Ruth in a series called Love Without Limits. And over the last seven weeks, we've been exploring this idea of hesed, God's promise-making, covenant-keeping, ever-faithful love. And the question that we've been asking every week is how can we as a church be marked not by the love of the world around us, a world that is marked by chaos, hatred, division, self-preservation, but rather how can we be marked by hesed? By God's love. Last week, Nan did a masterful job of unpacking how love risks. This week, we're going to discover how love redeems. Last Friday, I was at a dinner party with some of our couple friends. One of my friends, her name is Paige Fisher, over the course of the night, she began to share how she had developed an anxiety over the last couple years around death. And mortality. She was really anxious about dying, not the death itself, but as as a mother of two young girls, fear of leaving her children. And uh, she has really good reasons to be anxious. Over four years, she lost four of her best friends, four of her close friends to cancer. And Paige is uh, particularly um, accident prone, and so something that might be uh, mundane or normal for you and I will uh, often end up in some uh, hilarious and crazy injury for her. And so um, she jokingly, not jokingly said, I think maybe God might be trying to take me out. And we laughed. And then uh, she told this story. So about three weeks ago, she called her mom in a state of particular anxiety. And her mom did what all good Christian moms do, uh, She helped her calm down, reminded her of God's love. She said, Paige, look, your days are numbered. You can't do anything to add to them. God knows the day you were born, and he knows the day that you're going to die. And worrying isn't going to change that. And in fact, I know you're worried about God taking you out in one of these kind of big ways. If God really wanted to take you out, he could take you out in any kind of random little way that he wanted to. So it is not even worth it for you to be stressing out about this. Paige, somehow, was encouraged by that. (laughs) She like, you know what? My mom's right. I'm just going to be free and and just go about my day. So then what she does is she goes outside the house, and she goes to the car. She had to get something out of the uh, back seat. And as she is stretching across the back seat of her car, bam, the loudest noise something heavy hit the roof above her. And she's like, I'm going to die. She thought, I'm going to die. That's a tree that fell on my car. And then she realizes, wait a minute, that's, that's not a tree. Well, what was that? And so she gets out of the car and she looks on the top of the roof and on the sides of the car, there's this red liquid falling down the sides of her car. And she looks on the pavement and there on the pavement is the dead carcass of a Turtle shell completely shattered. A turtle fell out of the sky (laughs) and hit the roof of her car right where her head was. She looks up and there is a hawk circling 200 feet above her. And she starts to put two and two together. For those of you who don't remember, 90 seconds ago, her mom said, and I quote, God can take you out in any random way that he wants to. And then a hawk dropped a turtle from 200 feet, almost on her head. The table, we were in tears with uh, laughter and uh, shock. And someone at some point said, uh, I take it back, actually. I think Jesus is trying to take you out, mage. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what he's trying to do. That is a hilarious story. It is a funny story. And we have to tell stories like that when we talk about death, don't we? Because we have to soften the blow. It is one of the most difficult and terrifying things for us to talk about. And, and it's everywhere. Death is everywhere. It is inescapable. We cannot escape the reality of it. Three days this week, 72 hours, three acts of horrible, hate-filled, hate-filled murder in places that, that typically for us are safe. Grocery store, where we work, place of worship. And the question that should burn at the center of the heart of the world is this, can something save us from death? Is there anything that can deliver us from death? It is the question. Because if, if Hesed cannot redeem the world that is marked by death, then Hesed doesn't matter. Hesed is useless. Let's look together how the book of Ruth, chapter 4 speaks to these questions together. We're going to look at it in three movements. The first movement is this, is that love redeems us from death. We're in chapter four this morning. And chapter four serves as the climax to the story of the book of Ruth. And it is important at this moment to remind us, okay, what's at stake in this story? And what at stake is this, hesed itself. Because death is the enemy of Hesed. One of my favorite quotes about death uh, goes like this. There are three deaths. The first is when the body ceases to function. The second is when the body is consigned to the grave. And the third is that moment, sometime in the future, when your name is spoken for the last time one of the things that I love about this quote is that it haunts me uh, because it captures both the scope and the finality of death. There are three deaths that it speaks of, the death of our physical body, the death of of belonging or of separation from humanity, and then an existential death, the death of our being, the death of, of our name. And what's amazing about Ruth chapter 4, you see each of these kinds of death nipping at the heels of our characters, threatening the hope of Hesed. The first death is Naomi's, and it's the fear of physical death. Famine is in the land. She has no income, she has no resources, she has no heirs, she has no husband. Her looming physical death is inescapable. And that's true for us too. One day when I die, my body will catastrophically fail in its most basic functions. My neural synapses cease to fire. My heart will stop beating. My lungs will stop breathing air. My eyes will go dark. It's inescapable. The second death is Ruth's death. It is not a physical death. Though that does loom on her horizon. Hers is the death of separation. A death of belonging to community. She is a foreign woman in a foreign land. Of a foreign God. Now she has given her life to the Lord. Uh, But the only person she can claim in this place is Naomi. It's a death of identity and dignity and belonging. And this death too is inescapable for us. One day when I die... My presence will be gone from the face of this earth. Sue will reach for me in the night, and I will not be there. My sons will be at a table, joking, expecting to hear my laughter, and they will be met by silence. Anytime people that love me gather, I will be missing. I won't be there to hug or to hold or to argue with. This is a death. And it's inescapable. The third death is the death of Elimelech. This is not the death of a body. He had died long before. It's not the death of separation from humanity. His, his body has been in the dirt for a long time. This is a worse kind of death. This is the worst kind of death. It is a death greater than death. It is annihilation. It is the removal of of his name and his personhood from the history of the world. And this too is is inescapable for us. One day when I die, think about the very idea of me will pass from the memory of the world. People who love me deeply will, will, will strain to remember what my face looks like. My closest friends will start to forget what I sounded like. And the last time that my name is found on someone else's lips, or the last time someone tells a Derek story, the last time someone thinks about me. My personhood, everything that constituted Derek Mondu in this world will have been erased from existence. This is the death that is greater than death. And if I'm honest, I fear, I fear it most of all. Death is, is inescapable. And has many faces. One of my favorite passages that talks about this is, comes from the book of James. And James says, when desire uh, it conceives sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. And so death has, has as many faces as there are sins in the world. And so yours may not be one of the three that we talked about, but it, it might be the death of a broken relationship. It could be the death of physical suffering, the death of a mental and, and emotional trauma, the death of spiritual warfare, attacks on your family. It could be the unjust persecution or trials that you are facing. And what I want to hear, I want you to hear from, from the scriptures this morning is this, is that God sees you and he will not abandon you to his enemy. He sees death, nipping at your heels, invading the center of your life. And just like Naomi and Ruth, he says to you, I will not abandon you. I see you. And the question we should be asking is, can love redeem us from the death of our bodies? Can it redeem us from the separation of relationship? Can it redeem us from the death of our personhood? This is what is at stake as we begin Ruth chapter 4. This is the context as Boaz wakes up. That's our first movement, that, that love redeems us from death. Second, love that redeems much costs much. Love that redeems much costs much. There is a rescue operation underway in Bethlehem. And it is an operation to redeem two widows, Elimelech and all of his family, from death. It began with Naomi in chapter 3 and then Ruth improvises on it in the middle of chapter 3 and now it's Boaz's chance to take center stage and like the two women before him explode with God's hessed. And this is the rescue plan. In order for this to work, they have to find someone who is willing to fulfill two roles. First, that of the guardian redeemer. He was the one that was related to Elimelech that could buy the land. And also they needed a lever, someone who could promise to marry Ruth and provide for her and her descendants. This plan is uh, fragile at best. Without both of these things, listen church, without both of these things, a guardian redeemer and a leverite vow, hesed fails. Chesed fails in our story and death wins. Now, the good news is that Boaz wants to be that man. The bad news um, is that for all intents and purposes, this is a horrible plan. (laughs) This is a a really bad plan. It has holes so big you could drive schools of buses through it. First, uh, there's another guardian redeemer who is closer in line than Boaz. Boaz doesn't even have the right to do this. His name, as we'll find in the text, is Mr. So-and-so. I'm not joking. That's the best translation of the Hebrew, Mr. So-and-so. Now here's the reality, Boaz knew the man's name, so did everybody in the text. We'll come back to it in a minute. The author's trying to say something powerful about the cost of Hesed. But Mr. So-and-so is the one who is closest in line. It's his first right. Second, there's no legal responsibility for him to marry Ruth. It would be very unwise. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. So if Boaz makes his desire known that he wants the land, the odds are that this guy could just buy the land, not marry Ruth, and then they would both continue to be in peril. Death wins. And third, there's a famine in Bethlehem at this time. And so Mr. So-and-so is highly incentivized to to take the land and run. (laughs) To buy it and uh, to do nothing else with it, to not redeem and and uh, and marry Ruth or to redeem Elimelech and his family line. And so, what's happening is Boaz has to thread a needle for Hesed to win. And chapter four becomes the story of two redeemers, two heseds, Mister So and So lost to history and Boaz. So Boaz gets right to work executing this plan. He sets himself up in the city square. Now this would have been the most prominent entrance into the town. It's the heart of the community of Bethlehem. It's the center of government. Um, If something important was going to happen in Bethlehem, it always happened here in the square there's a good chance that he would be able to see Mr. So-and-so, and and he does. He tells him, hold on, wait, sit here. I'll be right back. He gathers 10 elders as they pass by to build a quorum. Okay, we're going to have some legal transactions that go down. You guys all sit here. He's pushing the agenda to make this meeting happen. And we're going to find right now that there are two great costs working in this interaction for Boaz. The first is this, it's the cost of his reputation. He is risking his reputation. He is putting all of his social capital on the line. He has been described as a man of character and integrity, and he is gonna use every ounce of it right now to convince these people to do something that is ridiculous. But it could cost him at any point. Someone could say, no, this isn't your plan. This is the plan of those women. It's he's, he's risking his reputation. He's also risking his resources, his life, his, his inheritance, his actual capital, not his social capital, his actual capital, all to redeem from death. So let's look at the first. How does Boaz risk his reputation, the influence of his good name? Well, he immediately puts the pressure onto Mr. So-and-so he tells him the situation about the land. He's honest and has integrity about his desire to want to buy it back and he gives the man the chance to redeem it. At this point, the decision is a no-brainer. <laughs> uh, there is uh, very little uh, money that he could, uh, for, for very little money, that Mr. So-and-so could, could carry out a very important family duty, could, could raise his reputation in the community and, and probably make a little bit of money by working the land. And so he says, yes, I'll do it. And this is where Boaz throws the curveball. Verse 5. Okay, on the day that you acquire the land, let me tell you what else is going to happen. You will also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess. She's the wife of the deceased. She's one of the widows of Elimelech's family. You have the responsibility to marry her. This isn't a bride purchase. This is um, marriage as a part of a legally valid transaction—it's completely inappropriate. It's completely inappropriate. <laughs> inappropriate. Nobody—you don't redeem people; you can only redeem land. And he, but he is tying the marriage to Ruth to the purchasing of this land, and you're going to do it to raise up descendants for Elimelech, that his name and people might prosper. Completely unheard of. But what's amazing is no one objects. No one objects. Boaz also risks his resources. He puts his life on the line. Mr. So-and-so's response is very telling. He immediately says, "Uh, nope, (laughs) I'm out. I can't do it. The words he specifically uses are, lest I ruin my own inheritance. And what's happening here is, if Ruth gives birth, if he marries her and she gives birth, it would cause financial ruin for him. So not only would all that he had invested in his own property, a significant portion of that, now go to these new sons, if she has any, these new family members, all of Elimelech's estate would go to that child as well. Now only a small fraction of what he had earned would actually still be for his own descendants. The cost to do hesed For these people, it's too much. It is too much for Mr. So-and-so. Thankfully, it is not too much for Boaz. Boaz immediately executes the rites of redemption when they are passed to him. He calls the elders to witness it, which binds him legally and forever to what he is about to say. And then here in front of all of them, what he basically says is this. What I'm doing is the spirit... Of God's law. The letter of it says. Buy the land. The spirit says save the family. From death. Even if it costs me. Everything. I am going to do Chesed. To Naomi. To Ruth. And to Elimelech. It is. Maximum risk. For maximum. Impact. And the author is challenging all of us, asking this question, what kind of redeemer are you? Are you like Mr. So-and-so? Or are you like Boaz? What kind of hesed explodes out of your life? I have been the recipient um, a few times in my life of Chesed, that explodes in costly love. I want to tell you the story of one of those times. Um, the source was a man named Ken Elzinga. Ken is uh, a well-known economics professor at the University of Virginia, uh, an incredible man of God. Uh, he has taught more students at UVA, twice as many students at UVA than any other professor has taught in the history of the school. He is a living legend. Uh, and he is deeply invested in the work of InterVarsity across the country. My wife and I, Sue, were on staff with InterVarsity for 14 years before we came here to 3rd. And we worked in that ministry together. Uh, the work was going well for the first few years. We saw some hope that like, something's going to happen. But um, it, it was really hard financially to, Full time. We had to raise all of our support, our salary, our expenses, our health, and everything. And so the, 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 the weight of two full staff budgets off of one network of people was just, it was brutal. Every year we would raise like $70,000 of $100,000, and then we would be $30,000 in the red. It was, it was brutal on us. It was hard. It affected the work. Um, but we were hopeful. And that December, our bosses, who loved us, they loved us. They sat us down, and they said, this can't go on much longer. Like, we think something good's happening here, but it's, it's not financially viable. And we were crushed, devastated. I mean, we had, uh, we had invested our lives in this work. And um, it was going to be gone. And so we, we do what we do. We prayed. We knew God had called us, and so we prayed. And a few weeks later, I get a call from Ken Elzingham. And Ken, uh, Ken says, uh, "Hey, Derek, um, you know how we've talked about way in the future when I die, I'd like to maybe leave some kind of endowment um, to help the work there. I've decided because the Lord has challenged me, to, He's to stretch me in my giving, that I'm going to give a $500,000 endowment to your work there now. It'll yield $30,000." a year in perpetuity. I know that's what you and Sue need to be able to be freed to do the work. I just listened, (laughs) Uh, said thank you, asked a couple times, hung up, I tried to tell my wife what just happened. Um, And then I called Ken back and I made him tell it all over again. I was just wanna make sure I did not dream (laughs) that I got the details correct. You're not just giving up like one time $3,000, no $30,000 in perpetuity, okay, that's great. It costs Ken a good bit to do that. <laughs> Clearly, $500,000. Um, also, it's not as financially uh, a good decision to, to do that now as opposed to working some tax stuff and angles with his estate. It costs him a lot. It also costs him in reputation. UVA is not the easiest place to be a Christian. It's harder to be a Christian professor. This continues to out himself as one of those crazy Christians who wants to give money to evangelism and discipleship. Was it worth it? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Every time I tell the story of a varsity, I've committed to Ken that I tell the story about his gift because it changed everything. We were able to be on campus 100% of the time and focus on the work of advancing the gospel amongst college students. We were able to add staff as we started to get more funding because we could spend some extra time and share some of this money with other people. We were able to build a multi-ethnic Ministry, because we could start funding out of that money staff of color who had incredible difficulty doing the same amount of work and raising much less money than their white counterparts on staff. We grew from 40 to 500 over the next five or six years, hundreds of conversions, hundreds of conversions in that time. That endowment continues, continues to fund the work of InterVarsity at UVA, all because Ken Elzinga believed. That God's love could redeem many. He couldn't see it yet. We only had forty people at that time. <laughs> he believed that love could redeem many. And so he risked much for the sake of Hesed. What what kind of Hesed comes out of you? What kind of risks Might God be asking you to take to redeem those around you through love? That's the second movement. First was love redeems us from death. The second is that love that redeems much, costs much. The third movement is this, and it's that love redeems to the uttermost. The response Is beautiful. I love how the witnesses respond. They don't know what to do. What they have seen is so radical. They have seen God's hesed in human form in front of them, and the only response they can do is to just emote in blessing. Blessing just comes out of them. It's beautiful, and what we see is this: is that God, through the hesed of Boaz, redeems to the uttermost Naomi is redeemed from the specter of physical death. Ruth, from the death of separation and the death of not belonging. She's no longer a Moabite in the text. She's called what? Wife. Full membership she has now in the covenant community of God. Earlier, an object of prejudice and and oppression. Now, one of God's elect, his own. The blessing confirms her status. Elimelech is saved from the annihilation of his name. Between the time that this book was written and the words you're hearing out of my mouth today where thousands of years have passed and still we know who Elimelech is. If death destroys to the uttermost, love redeems to the uttermost. And maybe one of my favorite parts of the book of Ruth is in this blessing. There is something that is happening here. They reference a number of names in the Old Testament. Rachel, Leah, Tamar, Judah. What is going on? And and this, this is, I love this turn in our book because this is when we start to realize the book of Ruth is not actually about Ruth at all. In the blessing, they say, we want to make, may God make you like Rachel and Leah these are the founding mothers of Israel eight of the 12 tribes of Judah come from these women they pray that he would build the house of Israel through her they mention the city of Ephrathah they are hinting at the line of king david they are hinting at the line of the messiah that through her offspring this woman this woman might bring about the blessings of god to the world When you look into the genealogies that flow from here, you will find this. When you get to the genealogy of of Jesus, there are four women in it. I love what Paul Miller says about this. He says it this way. Four women in Jesus' lineage. There's a prostitute, who's Rahab. There's a woman who pretended to be a prostitute, Tamar. There's a woman who acted a little bit like a prostitute, Ruth. And there is an adulteress, Bathsheba. And these women all prefigure the most scandalous woman that God would use in history. The mother of the Messiah, Mary. A teenage girl whose character, name, reputation, and standing would suffer greatly. Why? So that the world could be redeemed from death by love in her son, Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Don't miss it, brothers and sisters. This, this is proof that God himself is initiating his own rescue plan. I love the way that one commentator put it. it. said this, three ancestors of Jesus pouring out their lives for one another, sending signals like three glowing flares in the night sky that there is a better way than the world's way to love. Amen. Amen. This is triune love. Human beings pouring themselves out in Chesed for each other. God has initiated his rescue plan. It is his son, Jesus, and through his name that one day the world will be redeemed, bought back. Not, Not just you and I from sin and death, but all of the universe, the entire cosmos will be redeemed through this man. He gave himself as a ransom for many hallelujah hallelujah i love that as the drama of this book unfolds isn't that beautiful it's not really about ruth or naomi or elimelech it's a parable this book is a parable about how the covenant god the lord redeems the world from the death that is worse than death and he does it through his love I wanna close with this. Every time you read a passage of scripture, you should ask yourself this question. It's a great habit to get into. Who am I in this text? Where do I see myself in this passage? There's lots of places that you could go. You could try to see yourself as Ruth or Naomi or Boaz, but I, I um, I think I know who we are. I think we're the elders. We are the ones who God has called to bear witness to this beautiful thing, this Hesed that can save the world through death. And so I will close with these questions that Ruth asks her original hearers What kind of Hesed will your life give witness to? Will it be the Hesed of so and so? Safe, pragmatic, practical? Or will it be the hesit of God that will cost you a lot, a lot, but through which God himself will redeem the world? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. Even as we confess our fear of death, even as we confess our inability to even understand or comprehend, much less embody a Hesed like this, we pray and ask for you, God, not to waste our greatest sorrows and suffering. Oh, God, do not waste the places where death is nipping at our heels or invading our lives. Would you use them, God, to teach us how to live fully in your presence? Alive to hessed, alive to pain and sorrow, so that in the places of our shattering and your shaping, we might meet. Teach us how to love like you,
1: to be witnesses of your redemption in this world. Amen.